Thank you, Sean. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I want to welcome you to our service as we get ready for Independence Day week. Those of you that aren't down the shore, glad to have you. <clears throat> Two things. This week I was talking to a close friend, and um, I invited him to come to a Bible study. He goes, I just want to be honest. I'm not interested. And I, I've been thinking about that. What? And I said, you know what? He said, I'll probably fall asleep. I said, I guarantee you, you won't fall asleep. So I asked him one question. He said, well, at the end of the day, he said, well, I think we're all going to heaven. I go, really? Then you just called Jesus a liar because Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many people aren't going to go to heaven. I said, see, you won't be bored. So it, it caused me to think about this. As, as we come week by week, some of you, I don't know what you think about this book, right? Some of you are here, you're interested. Some of you are here because you believe. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So if Jesus is working in your life, this book is not just a, a dry old book, but it's the word of God. So we always invite you to take one of these Bibles. So if you don't have one, most importantly, we want you to read the Bible. So our, our, our folks are coming. If you need one or you forgot one, please. And what I want to encourage you to do is to at least be open to reading the Bible. Somebody once made a statement that struck me. They said, how does it feel to be wrong? And my initial response, ah, oh, it's so embarrassing. And they said, no, it doesn't. It feels like you're right. It doesn't feel bad to be wrong because you don't know you're wrong, right? You think you're right. It feels bad when you find out you're wrong. When it comes to the things of God, that's not one you want to get wrong. So many people are just okay with saying, hey, you believe what you want, I believe what I want. I had a friend tell me recently, I just let my kids pick. I said, that tells me that you don't have a clue and you definitely don't believe in truth because no parent would put nine bottles on the table and say, eight of them will kill you, one of them's good for you, you pick. So the Bible claims to be the word of God, claims to be absolute truth, and it tells one story, one big story about God, his creation, the fall of Adam and Eve and sin, and his plan to send Jesus to rescue those who will repent and believe in him and experience forgiveness. That's where we are in this story. If you're a forgiven follower of Christ, you already get it. You're in the journey and you're now a disciple. You're, a, you're, you're part of his family and you have a mission. You're here for a reason. And that's our, that's our vision here, to make disciples who make disciples. So wherever you are in the journey, we're going through the book of Numbers, and we're learning how to study the Old Testament and how to read the Bible together, and particularly how to point the Bible to our Christian faith and applications for ourselves today. So it's interesting because as we celebrate Independence Day, this chapter is about war. And you know, war is such a horrible thing, but at times one has to wonder... Is it ever a necessary thing? There are so many ethical dilemmas when it comes to war. I read a book last year. Bill O'Reilly is a very interesting historical writer, but he has a series of books called Killing Lincoln and so forth. 
but he has one called Killing the Rising Sun in which he details World War II and particularly the dropping of the bombs in Japan. And he wrestles with the moral question of, was that wrong? And, and at first you'd say, are you crazy? All the hundreds of thousands of people that died, of course it was wrong. But then statistically, most of the appraising generals said, if we have to fight this on the ground, because they're not going to surrender, we're going to lose another half million Americans. And so at the end of the book, he actually writes to Obama, Clinton, and George Bush and says, what would you have done? So I don't want to give you a spoiler alert. One of them wouldn't answer, and you could read what the other two said. But this morning, we're going to look at a passage in the book of Numbers that has what we would call a holy war. Now, a holy war is a war in which God deliberately tells his people to go in and to attack a group of people. And, and even that raises a lot of questions like, oh, I thought God was nice and good and love. Why would God ever want to do that? Well, there's a number of reasons. God is love, but he's also holy. He's also just. And it would be entirely fair for God to wipe out the entire planet. We all deserve his punishment. But there are times when he will inflict his judgment and punishment on his enemies in this life. Sometimes in the Old Testament, he used the Israelites. So the big picture, if you've been studying the book of Numbers, the reason why the, the Israelites are wandering is because they've been in Egypt for 400 years. But the reason why they're in Egypt for 400 years goes all the way back to Abraham. God said to Abraham, I've got this land for you I'm going to give to you, but before I give it to you, I'm going to send your people to Egypt for 400 years because the people who are living in the land, he called them the Amorites, their sin is not yet full or complete. So the idea is, in God's foreknowledge, he saw that these people were getting worse. The Canaanites, Amorites, they were getting wickeder and wickeder, godless. When you read the book of Deuteronomy about the things they would do to their children, their sexual perversions, their godless idolatry, the things that they would do, it, it reached a point where, where God had said, I'm going to annihilate them. And that seems harsh. That seems like, well, why? Even the children... Yes, because God in his sovereign purposes saw that this pattern would not be broken. It's still hard to swallow when God sends people to annihilate people. But that's part of the Bible, and it's something that we wrestle with, and it's not something that we should say, well, as a result of that, I don't believe the Bible. I want to encourage you to think about something. God didn't take a survey of, Hey, do you, do you think this would, do you think people will like this if I tell them this or that? The Bible says he is God, and who are we to say to the maker, why did you do it this way? So what we ought to do is be very thankful that God has revealed himself in the Bible. And we ought to be open to realizing that many things that we believed may not be the truth. And so I have to, every time I come to something that I disagree with, either I have to say, God, you're wrong, or I have to say, God, I was wrong. I would encourage you, the latter would be a better conclusion. Because Jesus said, as you come to know the truth, the truth will set you free. So this morning, we're going to look at this chapter. Remember, we're at the end of the story of the wandering, 
They're about to go into the promised land. Now, God had given two sets of laws. Number one, he said, the surrounding nations that aren't actually in the promised land, don't kill them. Offer them a treaty of peace. And if they accept it, then let them be. But if they rebel against it, wipe them out. In this case, though, there was one people group, the Midianites. They weren't actually in the promised land. But if you've been in the story here, remember the Midianites had a very, very evil event. Turn back to chapter 25 of Numbers for a moment. You remember when we studied the the story of Balaam, we learned that it was the Midianites who wanted Balaam to curse Israel. When Balaam was unable to curse Israel, Balaam instructed the Midianites, here's how you can destroy Israel. Send your women in to corrupt them, to bring them into sexual sin and idolatry. God was very angry at that. He judged his own people. Remember, he sent a plague and 24,000 people died. But now in this chapter that we're going to look at in a moment, he's now going to punish the Midianites as well. And it's an interesting reminder because that's the way God judges the entire world. The Bible says in 1 Peter 4, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, right? Those who profess to be Christians. But then Peter says, if, if that's the case, that God even judges among his people, what will become of the godless and the sinners? The people are like, I don't care about God. So look in chapter 25, at the end of that story of Cosby and Phineas, verse 16 says, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, be hostile to the Midianites and strike them. Why? For they have been hostile to you with their tricks with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister, who was slain on the day of the plagues. So he, he, he puts that in Moses' mind. You're gonna, you're gonna, they're going to get it. Now turn over to chapter 31, where they're going to get it. So let's pray before we study this. You might think that's awkward, but the Bible says that God's word is alive and powerful. And when we pray, the Holy Spirit opens our hearts, if we're receptive, to teach us and speak to us. Teach your kids to do that. Every time you have your quiet time, Lord, open my eyes. Help me to understand. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather as Christians to give thanks. We worship and thank you, God, for this nation that was won through the sacrifice and shedding of many men's lives, not only at... um, the American Revolution, but throughout history, the the wars that our people have sacrificed. And we're grateful today that we have independence because of many brave men and women, but ultimately because of your grace. Now, as we study the Bible and we look at this war, may your Holy Spirit show us ways that this can even be applied in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as you're reading with me, I want you to be thinking, as, as you're learning to study the Bible, What did it mean to them? What's going on in this story? And then, how should I as a Christian, I hope by now you're getting the habit of saying, how should I as a Christian think about this passage? How does this point me to Christ? 
What war am I in? What do I learn about God? What applications can I take from this? The Bible says all scripture is profitable. It's valuable. So God is teaching us. In fact, Bob sent me an interesting article. Um, someone actually posted an article called Why You Should Preach Through the Book of Numbers, Nine Reasons. And so Bob and I took that as a sign. Thank you, God. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's true. He did find that article. Okay. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. All right, we're going we're gonna to punish them for what they did. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. Talk about the good news and the bad news. Good news is, got one more job for you. Bad news is, this is your last job. But at the same time, it's good news for Moses. He doesn't say you're going to die and be annihilated or die and go to hell. This was a way of describing what happened in the Old Testament. When people died, if they were believers, they were gathered with all the other believers. But they didn't go into the very presence of God. They were in a place called Abraham's bosom, a place of paradise and comfort. So, Moses spoke to the people saying, arm men from among you for that war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. Now, we need to be really careful here because we're like, can I do that? When that guy cuts me off and then he parks in the parking lot, can I be God's tool to help him? No. The Bible says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But in this case, yes. So then he does something interesting because the Midianites were formidable. They had a big, big city with a lot of uh, fortresses, land, possessions. He says, take a thousand from each of all the tribes of Israel to send them to war. A thousand? There's only 12 tribes. 12,000? We're going to be the lesser in the army here. Their team has more players. But God sometimes does that to remind us, as in 1 Samuel 14, when Jonathan said, hey, let's go out and fight for the Lord because the Lord isn't limited to do his work by many or by few. God doesn't need massive crowds. Same thing, remember, in the story of Gideon. He intentionally whittled it down to a small group just to show that it's his battle, that the Lord will win the victory. So they gather these 12,000, and they were furnished a 1,000 from each of the 12 tribes armed for war. Moses sent them a 1,000 from each tribe to the war. But notice who else he sends. He doesn't send Joshua, Moses' servant, the warrior who fought against Amalek. But instead, this time he sends Phinehas. Now, you remember who Phinehas is? We just read about him in chapter 25. He's the grandson of Aaron. He's the son of Eliezer, the priest. He's the one that when he saw the godless immorality went in and killed Cosby to stop the plague. So now God is, is, is giving him greater responsibilities. It's a good reminder in Scripture. If you're faithful in the little things, God will entrust more to you. Those of you who are growing as disciples, be obedient and faithful if you have a job here at the church. In fact, we're told as spiritual leaders, don't appoint people as deacons and so forth unless they're first tested. So you get it. Teenagers are like, I'm too good for that. I deserve to make 14 an hour or whatever. Well, the same thing in the church. There's nothing that we're too good for. We should all be willing to clean up, vomit, change diapers, do the menial tasks, faithful to God, and God says that he will entrust us with more. So 
Phineas, the high priest's son, goes out with them to the war. Now notice what he took with him. The holy vessels, okay, so they took the ark, and the trumpets for the alarm. Now if you remember back, we had a whole chapter, Numbers chapter 10, talked about how they would use trumpets to give messages, and we were reminded that ultimately Christ will come with a trumpet. So, how'd it go? They made war with Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. Now, I'm going to assume, based on Deuteronomy, where they offer peace, that they may have come and had some offering, but conversation, but ultimately, the Midianites fought, and they killed every male. Now, not every male, we're going to learn every adult male. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, and it mentions these five kings. Now notice, they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And you go, huh, that ought to cause you to ask a question. Balaam's not a Midianite. Balaam's not from Midian. So you ought to be asking, what's Balaam doing in Midian? Well, remember, they had offered Balaam great riches and prosperity if he could figure out a way to destroy Israel. Apparently, Balaam was living the dream. He had compromised his conscience. He had turned his back and taught the Midianites how to corrupt the Israelites, and now he's reaping the spoils from Satan. And you know, that's how life works. You can do what's wrong and actually prosper. Satan will offer you blessings and benefits for sinning, for compromising. People do it all the time. Why do we have our head in the sand going, oh, if you do what's right, everything will be great in your life, but if you do what's wrong, everything will go terrible. Don't ever determine God's view of you simply by your circumstances, because you could be very prosperous but for the wrong reasons, with the wrong behavior, with the wrong motives, and God is going to bring you to reckoning. Or you could be doing everything right, and things could be going terrible, and that doesn't mean that God is in any way upset with you. So Balaam, living among the Midianites, he gets his due. And the sons of Israel then did something that we would think, well, that's a good thing, right? They captured the women, the little ones, all their cattle, all their flocks, and all their goods they plundered. So, I mean, after all, the men are the bad guys, right? And they burned all their cities where they lived and all their camps with fire. And they took all the spoil and all the prey, both of man and of beast. And they brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the sons of Israel to the camp at the plains of Moab, which are by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now, I want you to note something. Most of this chapter is going to be about the spoil, and it is a ton of stuff, okay? So it's not like they're like, hey, look, I got a pen knife. What'd you find? I found a new piece of Tupperware, so now we can store water. I mean, it's a massive amount of spoils that they got, second only to when they first came out of Egypt, don't forget, because you're like, how did they build all this tabernacle? Where did they get all this gold? The Bible tells us that when they left, they plundered the Egyptians, that the Egyptians gave them a ton of stuff, valuable jewelry. So the same thing here. 
these people now were blessed with an abundance of reward. I mean, we're going to read the staggering amount of animals and, and gold and possessions that they got when they came. So you would think that, wow, this is going to be great. Moses is going to line up a Super Bowl parade, right? But let's see what happens. Moses and Eliezer, the priests, and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry. You're like, you ever have a boss like that? No matter what you do, he's never happy. He's always finding something that I could have done better. Why is Moses angry? Well, you'll remember if you're familiar with the Bible that this is very similar to the story of Samuel when God told Saul through Samuel, go and kill the Amalekites. And Saul didn't do it all, but he was like, hey, you should be happy. And, and Samuel goes, no, God's not happy. You didn't obey him. And that's the case here. He's angry because God told him, go and kill them all. But whenever we try to come up with a better idea, anytime your better idea is the opposite of the word of God, take your, but, your better idea and try to condense it in a nutshell and then leave it in the nutshell. Because to, to come up with a better idea than God's word is always a mistake. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. If God says something in his word and it's clear what to do, just do that, even if you don't get it. Just obey him by faith. So, because of their disobedience, Moses said to them, have you spared all the women? Behold, Moses is like, McFly, do you have a short-term memory loss? These women caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so that the plague among the congregation of the Lord. Do you not remember that 24,000 of your relatives were killed because these women came in and corrupted us, and now you're buddying up with them? Are you mad? Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man intimately. Is that a hard verse? Yes. Why the little ones? Why children? God's ways aren't always our ways, but I'm going to assume that in God's foreknowledge that, that he saw there will be no repentance, that these will grow up and continue this spiral of wickedness and ultimately we're all going to die at some point and we all deserve God's judgment. So please don't let this cause you to go, I don't like God, but allow him to be God and realize that God has both a kindness and a severity. The Bible says, behold, the kindness and severity of God. He's not up there with a lightning bolt going, I'm looking to take somebody down. But he's also not up there like grandfather going, children, more candy, anything you want. I don't care if it's dangerous. Just ask and it's yours. So the girls who have not known man intimately spare for yourself. So he allowed them to raise up these young women to become their wives. And you... And this is weird. You who just obeyed God and, 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 and fought the war, camp seven days outside the camp. Whoever has killed any person and who has ever touched any slain, purify yourselves, you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify for yourselves every garment, article of leather, all the work of goat's hair, and all the articles of wood. And you're going, wait, what? 
This raises an interesting question. You will probably be told by people, how can something like that happen when God says, thou shall not kill? That's in the Ten Commandments. And he does say that. But the word for kill, the Hebrew word there is a word for murder, an intentional provocation where you murder someone. There are times in the Bible where God does speak of killing, including capital punishment. But yet, even when they did what's right, they killed their enemies, there's something so heinous about death, such a reminder of the curse that came from Adam and Eve that brought death, that you still needed to be ceremonial clean. Remember Numbers 19, the, the red heifer, where they had that water from the red heifer to purify themselves. So they still needed to be purified, even though they hadn't been disobedient. It was simply they had touched dead bodies. That is no longer a law of God in the New Testament. We're not under the Mosaic law anymore. So don't feel like, oh, if I touch my dead loved one, um, or if I'm a police officer and I shot someone for the right reason, then I'm unclean. That's not what this is teaching. This was very specific. Then Eliezer and the priest said to the men of war, this is the statute which the Lord had said, only the gold, silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire. So for, for ceremonial and symbolic reasons, God's like, everything that had to do with those people, I want it to be cleaned before you use it. And we're not talking germs here. We're talking about sin. There are many analogies in Scripture of removing sin from your life and removing yourself from sin's presence as you learn how to walk with God. And so in this case, there's something ceremonial and symbolic. Even though you're going to keep all of this stuff, I want you to cleanse it, okay? And sometimes when people become Christians, you have to wrestle through like, yeah, I always liked that um, statue of a voodoo uh, thing that hangs on my wall, but does that have connotations that maybe I don't want there anymore? Does this in my house, maybe something, this music, this, this literature, the, 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 the structure, you know, sometimes we just have to think through. The Bible says, come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean things. So we don't want to impose our rules on everybody else if they're not in the Bible, but we do want to think about separating ourselves from sin and separating sin from ourselves. So, they went through these ceremonies and the Lord spoke to Moses, even the priests and the heads of the father's household, take account of the booty that was captured and we're gonna just quickly end this up and talk about some application. Divide the booty between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. Now, how would that go with you? You're like, wait a minute, I just spent six months in service in Iraq and now I come back, and all the people who didn't go get stuff. They didn't do it. What's this we thing? Why should they be rewarded? But we learn from Scripture that the people of God are, 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 are one. Later on in David's life, he had a similar experience. And he told the people who went out to war, he said, I want you to also share the spoils with those who stayed behind with the baggage. So this is not encouraging socialism that might encourage laziness, but it's reminding us that as a people of God, different people have different positions of service, and each one of us should be rewarded for our labor, but not necessarily, oh, Billy Graham gets all the spoils because he's the big soul winner. We are going to learn later that the soldiers themselves got 50 times more. 
but yet they were sharing with the congregation. Levy attacks for the Lord from the men of war who went to battle. One in 500 of the persons and of the sheep. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest. So from the soldiers, they, they had to give something to the Lord. Now, hello, I don't know how in our culture there are so many people who call themselves Christians who don't give to the Lord. I'm going to hope that it's out of ignorance. But statistically, Bible-preaching churches, Bible-preaching churches, I'm not talking about churches that are just, you know, off the wall, not even talking about the Bible. Statistically in America, 50% of the people give nothing. That's, that's staggering. Like, what would cause a Christian to think that, oh, I, this is my stuff. I don't have to give to God. Why would I do that? I can't even afford it. I can't afford to give to God. So we're going to talk in our applications. One of the things I want you to think about here is the privilege, the motivation, and the opportunities, and the obligation of giving. So they made an offering to the Lord. From the sons of Israel's half, you'll take one of every 50. See, the soldiers is one of every 500. And then they made an offering. And Moses and Eliezer did as the Lord commanded. Now, the booty that remained from the spoil, look how staggering, was 675,000 sheep, almost three-quarters of a million sheep. And look at the cattle, donkey, human beings, half the portion that went to war, the number of sheep, the Lord's levy of the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, and the human beings. Moses gave the Lord's offering to Eliezer the priest, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And as for the sons of Israel, half which Moses separated from the men who were going to war, the congregation's half was this, the human beings were this, and, from the, and, I, and I don't mean to make light of God's word, but we're, we have less time because of communion today, which was planned. Moses took one drawn out of every 50 of the Levites. Then the officers approached Moses and they said, hey, we've taken a census of war who are in our charge, and no man of us is missing. I read a quote in one of the commentaries that said, this may be the only large military operation in which there was not one single casualty on one side. This is a wonderful act of God's grace. Not one man died, not one stray arrow or distracted person got killed, not one man. So these soldiers didn't want to take this providence of grace lightly. Man, and some of you have had experiences like that, like I should have died in that accident, or that cancer should have taken me, or I should have lost mother, or I should have lost my job, or my, I can't believe that car accident. When things like that happen, we ought to take it to heart and learn maybe something from these guys. Because of this unusual act of providence, these leaders, it says, we've brought an offering to the Lord. This was just, they, they didn't have to do that. They were just so grateful that not a soul died that they brought an offering to the Lord. Now, notice they also said, we want to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. For what? They didn't do anything wrong, except perhaps that they didn't kill everybody. But it is a good reminder that even on our best day, when we're like, I think the Lord's very pleased with me, we need the blood. We need to come humbly and say, God, use me in spite of me, but help me to try my best to stay pure. But the Bible says there's not a just man on the earth who doesn't sin. And so it's a 
reminder of their humility. God, thank you so much. And we want to just bring an offering to you. And so they took the gold and the offering from the captains, and the men of war had taken the booty, every man for himself. So Moses and Eliezer, the priests, took the gold from the captains, brought it to the tent of meeting. Now look what they did with it. It was a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord. So I don't know if he made a gold statue out of it, not to be worshipped, but he did something to remind people in the years to come of how God had spared his people and his people responded with gratitude. So you say, hmm, pastor, now what? I don't plan to be fighting any Midianites anytime soon. So let me make a couple quick suggestions. First of all, remember, and I'm going to have to be selective, but remember a couple things. Let's talk about two things we learned from the soldiers. First, we learned that these soldiers remind us that we're constantly in contact with sin. And they recognize their need to, to stay right with the Lord. And that's, that's something I want to encourage you to do. As you go through the week, when we sin, if you're conscious in your thoughts or actions, confess it. Repent from it. Ask God to forgive you and cleanse you. He promises us marvelous grace. But we secondly learn from the soldiers gratitude that led to giving. Honoring God with our service but we should also honor God with our substance. I wanted to mention something. <clears throat> We're doing well financially because we had a very, very generous December. But since January, our giving trends have been down. It's nothing that we're alarmed about. And the only reason that I'm informing you is because it would be wise to, to let you know. Our people have always risen to the occasion, but we're running behind each week, and we've been doing that for probably the last eight or nine months. We're still okay because of how much that was given. So I only say that to encourage you to, to think through, are you giving? If you're not giving, remember the giving ladder. Start giving regularly to Christ. If you're giving regularly, consider what proportion, what percentage, keep some records. And by God's grace, hopefully out of your gratitude, not out of guilt, you will continue to increase your giving, moving towards a tithe and even beyond that. And I, and I used to think to myself, I don't want to talk about money, but I don't think that anymore because Jesus spoke often about money because that's part of discipleship. So just think about what you might want to say, God, you've been so gracious to me. I want to give more to you out of gratitude for that. Bob and, our, and I aren't, stockpiling it so we can get our new Mercedes. We don't know who gives. We don't know how many give personally or whatever, but I want to make you aware that if you're not a regular giver and you're a part of this fellowship, get in the game. And if you kind of have fallen behind or whatever, we all can learn from these soldiers to be grateful. But the last thing I want to share, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to close with this, is remember we said that this whole book, we've themed it as worship and war. Well, the Apostle Paul was fond of military imagery in the New Testament, and he pictured Christianity as a war, right? Now, some of you remember from little kids, I'm in the Lord's army, I may never march with the enemy, right? 
But, but remember this, we are in a war, and there's a couple things to think about. First of all, our primary enemy is Satan. The Bible says, be strong in the Lord, because we are in a wrestling fight against principalities and powers and world forces and demonic influences that, number one, if you're a Christian, they want to take you down. They want to bring you into sin. He wants to deceive you. He wants you to be groaning, not growing. And he's clever, and he has tactics, and he's powerful. And so we need to pray and watch and be in the Word and exhort each other. But we also remember to, to need to remember this, that our mission is not just to hide inside the barracks and hope that the devil doesn't bomb us. We're actually sent out into enemy territory. And all the people that we interact with, many of them are, are Satan's captives. They're lost, they're deceived, and they're on their way to hell. And we are God's instruments who go out in the name of Jesus and interact with our friends and loved ones, building relationships and praying that God will use us and others to bring them to Christ. This week, the, we were down in Ocean City. This lady shows up to, to clean the apartment. And um, we start talking to her. And she says, you know, I'm uh, such and such religion. I could tell and talk to her. She didn't know the Lord. But she said, it's really weird. My friend actually invited me to go to church with her this morning, a non-denominational church. But I couldn't because I had to come clean this house. But now I realize why. Thank you for opening my eyes. She prayed and received Christ. She asked me to send her a Bible. She even texted me later. And it's just a joy to go, wow, anytime we're out there, we're trying to just be a witness. Who knows? It's not like you have to stand up on a street corner and preach. Just build relationships. But secondly, we're fighting not only to win lost people, but to build the church. And so I want to close with this verse, and I hope you'll think about this a lot is that as we're in this Christian fight to build the kingdom of God, to reach souls, to help Christians grow, many of you, you get it. As a parent, you're just trying to keep your kids on the right track. You're trying to pray and, and lead an example so that your kids will follow Christ. And we struggle with marriage problems, addiction problems, financial problems, relational problems, health problems. We get it. We all are in this together. But look at this beautiful verse. As Paul was experiencing a personal conflict with the church at Corinth, when Titus brought him good news that the Corinthians had repented, it reminded him, he's like, oh yeah, I'm just a soldier. Jesus is my general. So here's my closing charge. You're going to go out here right now, back to the war. But the Lord Jesus is your personal general. And all you're doing is following him in this triumph, winning victories for him. Look at this beautiful verse, 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So get your Ben-Hur on, and, and you're in your chariot, and you're behind King Jesus, who's out there triumphing. But as we go, it says, He manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Back then, when a military general won a war, he would bring back a parade with his soldiers, and he would give them spoils, and they would meet him with a parade of incense. And they would also bring captives, some which would become slaves and some which would become executed. So the question was, what did that aroma smell like? If you were on the winning side, it smelled wonderful. It reminded you of the victory. If you were one of the captives, it stunk 
awful because it reminded you of your death. So in the same way, you and I go out to work, to our neighbors, to our kids, and we're emitting the fragrance of Christ. Some like it, some don't. Some will be mad, some will be glad, some will feel sad, some will feel had. But thanks be to God. Look what it says. It says, God is manifesting the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. We're letting people be exposed to what Jesus is like by our lives. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. You don't know. That coworker may be someone that God is calling to yourself, even if they're cranky as all get out. But we're also among those who are perishing. So those of you who have loved ones that can't stand your Christianity, get it. We understand. Because to one, we're an aroma from death to death. To another, aroma from life to life. And who's adequate for these things? So I want you to stand with me, and I'm going to give a benediction this morning as we're going to go out in the name of Jesus. Father, over us as your children today, I pray that you will fulfill what you promised, that you will always lead us in triumph in Christ. There are people here with broken hearts. Comfort them as they, as they find healing in Christ. Always lead us in triumph in Christ, no matter what our circumstances. We know that the battle is done. Jesus has won the victory. But send us out and manifest through us the aroma of Christ so that we might save many who are perishing. Father, bless each of your children this morning. Thank you for your mercies that Christ died instead of us. May we be encouraged and lead on, Lord Jesus, until you come again. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.